If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. As I'm sure you already know, this podcast is produced by the team behind BBC History magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. And if you haven't had a chance to get hold of our magazine recently, we'd like to offer you the chance to get a copy of our next issue absolutely free. Please text the word HISTORY to 78070 to request your free magazine today. One of our team will be in touch to organise delivery direct to your door. This offer is available for a limited time only and only available for UK residents. So please don't miss out. Text HISTORY to 78070 to get your free copy today. Just a quick note, texts are normally charged at your standard network rate. Please check with your provider for further details. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Dr. Eleanor Woodacre is the latest expert to join us for our Everything You Wanted to Know series. She's here to discuss medieval queens and queenship. Putting your questions to her was our content director, Dave Musgrove. Today, in our Everything You Want to Know series, we are looking at medieval queens, and I'm joined by our expert, Dr. Eleanor Woodacre. Uh, Dr. Eleanor uh, Ellie Woodacre is a senior lecturer in early modern European history at the University of Winchester. She's a specialist in queenship and royal studies and has published extensively in this area, including her monograph, The Queen's Regnant of Navarre, Succession, Partnership and Politics, 1274 to 1512. She's edited several collections, most recently the Routledge History of Monarchy, and she's currently developing a biography on Joan of Navarre. Uh, She's the organiser of the Kings and Queens Conference Series, founder of the Royal Studies Network, editor in chief of the Royal Studies Journal and the editor of the Lives of Royal Women series. So we couldn't really have found anyone more appropriate to answer your questions on medieval queens. Now, as ever in this series, the questions I'm going to ask are a mix of ones asked by you via our social media platforms at historyextra.com and some of the most popular internet search queries. And we've got questions that cover a wide area of time and place across Europe and from the 11th through to the 15th century. So we've got a lot to get through. Um, So Ellie, welcome. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. The first question we've got is is a popular internet search one, um, a, a bit of a curious question. But uh, what did queens eat in the Middle Ages? Now, I don't know. I don't know how easy that is to answer, but uh, give it your best shot. Yeah, well, obviously, there's been a lot of work kind of on uh, the diet of, of kind of in the Middle Ages more generally. But in terms of queens specifically, where we can get a lot of information is actually economic records. So things like household accounts, which are incredibly helpful in so many ways in understanding the kind of everyday lives of queens. So one of the things that's frustrating, at least for English queens, is that we don't have like a full set of accounts. So we can't kind of trace their lives year by year, day by day. But from the accounts that do survive, it gives us a really good idea of kind of what things they're buying in for their household, what kind of supplies are coming in. So even though we can't trace, again, the menu each and every day, it can reveal some of the things that queens often ate or what they like to eat. Another way we can kind of get an idea of kind of queen's taste of the things they might be eating was from things that were sent to them as gifts. So food was a popular type of gift in the Middle Ages. 
And so, for example, if we look at the, uh, the Queen's book or the privy purse accounts of Elizabeth of York, we can see some really interesting things. So, for example, on a particular day in 1502, uh, you know, 20 pence was paid to a particular servant who was bringing a present of cakes and apples and cherries to the Queen at Windsor. Um, and actually, apples is really interesting because they keep popping up as a really frequent gift. So, it might indicate that people liked apples or that perhaps the queen liked apples. And so giving the queen something she liked was a, a good way to curry favor. Uh, so again, we've got you know examples of a, of a servant who was paid three shillings and four pence for pomegranates and apples that were given to the queen. Um, another, a poor woman was given, uh, brought a present of apples from Hounslow uh, to the queen at Richmond. Uh, so she was given 20 pence for that. Um, another day, the Lady Hungerford uh, sent the queen a present of apples as well. So we can see from you know kind of the poorest to, to the richest, people were all sent Elizabeth of York apples. So I <laughs> don't know what that says about, about uh, apples, again, in terms of its general popularity or its popularity with Elizabeth. And actually, one of the things that's really interesting about that is um, the Tudor Chamber Books project um, that my colleague, Dr. James Ross, was involved in. You can search Elizabeth's accounts online there, which is really exciting. So the Queen's book is E36-210. And the great thing is that you can browse it day by day, so you can see all these things coming in, or you can search it for food items. So you can put in apples, strawberries, you know, anything you like, and kind of see what comes up. So again, that's something you can kind of follow up if you wanted to know more, at least about Elizabeth of York's diet that year. Okay, that's well. That's a good trick. We'll try and get the uh, link to that and put it on the uh, show notes for, for for that. That's that would be interesting. So we've got a, a queen who's inundated with apples, um, which is <laughs> is quite an interesting idea, isn't it? Uh, let's hope she liked apple crumble. I'm, I wonder when apple crumble was uh, developed. I'm not sure. Anyway, we'll we'll have to move on. Right. The next question, internet, uh, another internet search question, another popular internet search question is: What did medieval queens wear? Again far too broad to be able to answer with any uh, any specifics but um but what's what's your sense in answer to that well, obviously, again, there's been a great deal of research by fashion historians on kind of broader medieval trends of the period. So that gives us some idea. But the frustrating thing is it's really hard to be exact about what particular women actually wore or what they actually looked like. So, you know, today, obviously, we've got loads of photographs. Everyone picks apart kind of everything that Kate Middleton wears, for example. Um, but in, in the Renaissance, again, you know, portraiture was hugely popular and often highly realistic. But when we go back to the Middle Ages, we've got very few contemporary images of medieval queens. And one of the things that's frustrating is they're often idealized instead of realistic. So again, it makes it hard. Um, and it also, you know, illuminated manuscripts, they were often created quite a long time after a queen might have lived. And so they often reflect the fashions of the time in which they were created rather than the time in which that particular uh, woman was alive and the kind of clothes that she was actually wearing. So again, going back to those financial records, those can be really helpful because in the household and the wardrobe accounts, we have the records of the clothing that was purchased and owned by queens. Um, sometimes there's a lot of description of those clothes, and other times there are more kind of lists of, of what kind of cloth was bought in, what kind of furs, trimmings, etc. But I'm going to kind of segue a little bit because something we do know more about that was really important that medieval queens wore was jewels. So uh, Nicola Tallis, um, who I'm sure many of you know, she did an amazing PhD thesis with me on the jewel collection of the late medieval and early Tudor queens. And I know she's going to be telling you more about that soon. Um, but one of the things she really looked at was how important it was for queens to wear jewels to project majesty and status. So the queen's bling, you know, was really kind of demonstrated the power and the wealth, not only that she had, but of her husband, the king, and even the realm itself. And jewelry was really important in terms of sending out messages. So Joan of Navarre, when she married Henry IV in 1403, 
um, one of the things that she was gifted was a massive kind of collar or necklace, and it cost 500 marks. So that's 333 pounds, six shillings and eight pence. And it wasn't just the fact that it was, you know, the gold and the jewels that went into it. It was the design of the collar that was important. It was in the Lancastrian double S design, which really kind of marked the wearer as kind of one of the Lancastrian affinity. And you can actually see her wearing a collar just like this on her tomb with Henry at Canterbury Cathedral. Um, that same right before they married as well, Henry gave Joan a crown. And that was worth um, 1,313 pounds, six shillings and eight pence. And we know it had several huge emeralds on it. It also had sapphires, rubies, diamonds and pearls based on the, the description of it in, in the treasure accounts. Um, and actually, it was the same crown that her predecessor, Anne of Bohemia, had worn when she married Richard II in 1382. So again, it's really symbolic. A crown is, you know, it, wearing a crown is kind of an indication of the queen's role and office itself. But wearing her predecessor's crown and also tied her into that tradition of previous reigns. Um, so unfortunately, this crown doesn't survive, but a really great, fantastic example um, that does is the crown that Henry gave his daughter Blanche when she wed uh, Louis III of Bavaria. And that one is absolutely fantastic. It's extant. It's, it's one that's, again, really easy to Google. I actually use it as my, um, my avatar on, on Twitter because it's so beautiful. And it gives us some idea of how that crown might have worked. So again, slightly different, but something we do know more about, like I said, is, is the jewelry and and, uh, and we can kind of piece together, again, the clothing a little bit from those accounts, as I mentioned. So this is a serious question. Uh, people were as fixated on, on, the, uh, on, the, on the dress and sartorial habits of the queens then as, as perhaps they are today. And that, that leads into our, our next question, which is uh, another internet search one, which uh, is, is, a, is a strange one in, in some ways. But the question is, who was the most beautiful medieval queen? And I suppose that that speaks of concepts of beauty and, and, and all sorts of interesting ideas. So what's your answer to that? Well, no, I think this, it's obviously a, a difficult one to answer, but it really speaks nicely to the ideals of queenship or the expectations of medieval queens. And I always summarize them as the four goods and the three Ps. So basically queens were expected to be kind of the ultimate good woman and a model of kind of virtuous behavior. They were expected to be good wives and good mothers and good rulers, but they were also expected to be pious peacemakers and pretty. Now, it, it kind of seems like a little bit of a trite summary, but it does really sum up what was expected of medieval queens. And beauty was obviously a huge part of this. So queens were meant to kind of represent, um, you know, kind of contemporary ideals of beauty. Um, but again, as I was talking about with clothing, queens were often portrayed in, in kind of described in an idealistic manner. So they were often referred to as kind of beautiful or fair, even if they weren't necessarily attractive. I mean, again, you don't want to kind of say that the queen wasn't you know, wasn't, wasn't a looker, you know, <laughs> so she's often described as, you know, the most beautiful, etc. Um, so it, it's very hard to know, again, with the actual, how beautiful, if you like, the actual woman was in kind of absolute terms. So, and it goes to kind of, you know, again, if you see how medieval queens are described, they're often described as beautiful. So Caxton, for example, in the game and play of chess in the 15th century, he starts his description of, the, of, of a queen saying, she ought to be a fair lady sitting in a chair and crowned with a crown on her head. So again, the very first thing he says about her is being fair or beautiful. And we can see this in other sources like uh, the medieval Welsh triads. Um, some of them describe queens as the most beautiful woman ever seen. 
And Alfonso X of Castile, he wrote his Siete Partires, and he talks about kind of what one should look for in a royal bride. And he says, the more beautiful she is, the more he, uh, the, the king, will love her. And the children which he has by her will be more handsome and more graceful, which is very fitting for the children of kings in order that they may make a good appearance among other persons. So again, he's saying, you know, you want a, a beautiful bride, she'll make beautiful children, and that's a good thing for the monarchy. Um, so it's really interesting, again, kind of seeing how these kind of ideals of queenship are kind of all kind of tied together there because Alfonso is basically equating this idea that a beautiful woman will make a beautiful wife and a, a, a sorry a, a good wife a good mother and kind of this ideal woman which kind of takes us back full circle to what we were talking about in terms of those expectations of medieval queens. So uh, an idealized sense of beauty but obviously uh, they can't all have been beautiful in this in 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 the uh, in the way that um, beauty was understood then. Um, are there any examples of um, and all queens were sort of I guess taken from a certain social stock, weren't they? You know there wasn't there wasn't much movement, or, or was there? Were there any examples of um, of particularly beautiful women being elevated into royal circles because of their particular beauty, or does that just not happen? Well, I think the, one of the ones that we could perhaps say that with was Elizabeth Woodville. So, I mean, obviously, Elizabeth Woodville's marriage to Edward IV was um, a bit of a shock. I mean, obviously, you know, he was being kind of lined up for a more diplomatic, traditional kind of marriage that was going to bring an alliance, etc. And he makes this decision to marry this, this woman who is a, a widow, you know, not of the same kind of, so she's not a foreign princess, for example. And there has been some discussion that, that, that beauty was kind of part of the equation that perhaps Elizabeth's beauty might have ensnared him in that way. Um, so I think she's a really perhaps a good example. Although again, you know, we don't have, we the images we have of her are, you know, it's questionable how realistic they are. Clearly, um, there, there's a there's a perception, if you like, that, that she might have been extraordinarily beautiful. And that might have, again, uh, led Edward to choose her for his bride. Okay, interesting. Right, so we've got um, a, a few questions here which sort of talk about the same theme, so I'm going to um, conflate them a bit. So we've got a, another popular internet search question, which is, did queens play a significant role in medieval court politics? And then uh, Grace Howe on Facebook had asked, I'd really like to know the process for queens interceding in court politics. And uh, Karina Collins, again on Facebook, has asked, how much autonomy did queens have when a king was on the throne, what was the role of the queen? So it's talking about the political power of queens. What can you what can you tell us about that? Yeah, no, this is a great question because this is something that I think we're all really interested in. And obviously, queens did play a significant role in court politics on a number of levels. I mean, they are right at the center of power as kind of half of the ruling unit. So we would expect them to be engaged in some way. Now, sometimes we can see that very kind of overtly or very clearly, and, and particularly at times when, say, their husband is absent or incapacitated. So Margaret of Anjou during the Wars of the Roses, or perhaps going back further, Matilda of Boulogne, who was leading royal forces in 1141 during the anarchy period when you know, Stephen was held captive. Um, but even in those, you know, kind of more normal times, we see queens consistently engaged in politics. But it's not always that easy to see that. Now, one of the things that's difficult for us as, as queenship historians is looking at the chronicles of the Middle Ages. Often it's men's actions and that, that get more prominence and that kind of hard power, that kind of obvious power versus the queen's kind of more kind of soft power and influence. Now, that can be just as effective, but it's harder to measure and it's harder to quantify. And again, it's not always on the radar uh, intentionally or unintentionally of kind of medieval chroniclers. 
So again, as I was saying, you know, kings and queens, we have to look at them together. They're kind of two halves of the same whole. But for a consort queen, the amount of kind of power and influence she had had a lot to do with her relationship with her husband. So again, if she's got a very good relationship with her husband, if he loves her, if he trusts her, he's more likely to kind of seek out and listen to her counsel, her ideas. And when she intercedes and she makes requests or suggestions, again, he's more likely to kind of go with that. Um, So that's really important for her in terms of the amount of power and influence. Again, if their relationship is broken down, if they barely see each other, if, if, you know, he doesn't get on with her, again, he's less likely to kind of give her credence or she's less likely to have the opportunity to influence him as well. Now, thinking about intercession, that's a really good question because that's something that, again, queenship scholars have looked at really intensely. So queenly intercession and its kind of more public nature where a queen would often kind of, again, uh, you know, publicly in in, the, in in front of the court kind of ask the king uh, to, to pardon someone or to change his mind or to grant a request that she made. Um, it's a really important aspect of queenship. And again, it gives us an opportunity to see these recorded instances where the Queen's wishes are noted as a rationale. So sometimes you'll see these again uh, in in kind of court documents saying the King grants at the request of his beloved consort such and such. And so again, we can see that. So intercession can be seen again as this kind of kind of co-rulership. It's like the king and queen kind of working together in this kind of complementary fashion. So the king is kind of cooperating with the requests of the queen, and the queen is kind of complimenting the king because she's offering him the opportunity for mercy, if you like. So it's also something that that goes back in the Middle Ages, uh, really importantly, to religion. So it, it goes back to the idea of the influence of Queen Esther in the Old Testament, or the Virgin Mary, again, the ultimate kind of intercessor. And that fits in with like queenly ideals of piety and also the expectation that queens would be peacemakers um, as well. So seeking mercy and pardons, resolving disputes through intercession, that's all considered to be kind of appropriate political activity um, for queens. But it also increases her power because again, if a queen is seen as a successful intercessor, so if the king regularly agrees to her requests and grants mercy when she asks for it, or um, again, if she, if she makes her request, the king actions it, that increases her power. So people, petitioners and courtiers will come to the queen looking for her assistance and favor because they see her as being someone who can kind of get things done with the king or incline the king, uh, has the king's ear, for example. It can even benefit her financially. So the queen's gold um, was a levy in, in England of 10% on all voluntary fines made to the king. And I Actually, it was designed to initially to kind of recognize and recompense the queen for for her intercession. Um, Now, intercession, as I mentioned before, was kind of a a kind of a public thing. It had almost a kind of a performative quality. And one of the things that that people often think about in terms of intercession is the famous example in Foissart's Chronicles about Philippa of Hainaut kind of making this kind of dramatic plea to the king um, to pardon the burghers of Calais when she was pregnant. Now, we have to be really careful because, again, scholars have kind of broken that down and kind of, you know, said, well, there's no way this could have happened in the way that Foissart describes it. But even if it didn't happen just like that, what it does demonstrate in the fact that Foissart chose to put that in is that queenly intercession was kind of recognized as kind of part of the medieval political system, that it had value and importance. 
Now, in terms of the last bit of the question, that bit on autonomy that was asked as well, um, it's important to remember that the queens had significant lands of their own. So they had their, their dower, which they administered. Now, that effectively made them um, one or sometimes even one of the greatest landowners in England after the crown itself. So they had a huge amount of land spread out across the realm, and they had a great deal of authority in those lands. Now, in Portugal, actually, that, that authority was even greater. So the queen had kind of a set of cities that they effectively ruled. They had full powers for justice, taxation, etc. So again, you know, that gives us a really good idea as well of where we see queens working together with kings in terms of politics, but also having some independence and autonomy in their own lands to be kind of political agents um, in their own rights. Okay. Um, you mentioned Queen's consort there, and we've got Queen Regnant, haven't we? What's, what's, the, what's, the, what's the difference between those, those two terms? No, that's a really, really good question. So um, I often kind of start my kind of queenship modules with that. There's a really famous quote by Teresa Ehrenfeit, who's a great queenship scholar, that a queen needs an adjective. Um, so when we've got a king, a king is a king, right? We might have a consort king, but a king is a king. With a queen, we have to qualify the type of queen that she is. So is she a queen consort, i.e. is she the king's wife? Is she a regnant queen, i.e. she rules in her own right? Is she a re queen regent, so ruling on behalf of someone else, perhaps a minority child. Is she a queen lieutenant? Uh, again, in Iberia, they have this distinction for a queen who's ruling in the absence of her husband. Uh, so in Aragon, for example, they had this kind of far-flung empire. If the king was elsewhere, the queen would be his lieutenant and rule in his place. We've got dowager queens, which are, again, widowed uh, queens and queen mothers. And queen dowagers and queen mothers, sometimes the same thing. But again, in Joan of Navarre's case, she was the widow of Henry IV, but she wasn't Henry V's mother. She was a dowager, not the, the queen mother, even though she was for, referred to as such. So yeah, absolutely. It's important to kind of clarify all these different types of queens that we've got. Okay. Okay. <laughs> um, right. Okay. Now we're going to jump into uh, some more specifics and uh, look at some questions. So I've got a question here from uh, Jameson Shutt on Facebook. Jameson's asked a few questions in this series. So thank you for your interest, Jameson. Uh, your question is, given the obvious difficulties and gender biases of the time, would it have been possible for the Empress Matilda to have been a successful monarch? And then it goes on, are there any other examples in Western Europe of women successfully ruling alone in the Middle Ages? Not as regent, but in their own right. So going back to the point, you just talked about. Um, so um, so you better just uh, briefly tell us who Empress Matilda, Matilda is first before you jump into this. Yeah, yeah. So the Empress Matilda, uh, really, really interesting because um, she's often one that we look at with terms of medieval queenship because she's a great example of a woman who failed to claim the throne in her own right. Now, she'd been officially designated as the heir of her father, Henry I, uh, in, in the 12th century after her brother died in the famous kind of white ship disaster. So Henry I kind of made his magnates and lords kind of swear up and down that they would um, support her as his heir, that when he died, the crown would go to her. And yet, uh, when uh, Henry does die, then it's Stephen of Bois, who is Matilda's cousin, who kind of manages to get across the channel first um, with the help of his brother, uh, Henry Bishop of Winchester, seizes the treasury, makes himself king. And then the empress is forced to kind of fight this, this difficult, challenging, and ultimately not successful battle to kind of reclaim the position that should have been hers. So that's, this is a really great question. She's a really interesting figure to look at. Now, it's easy to look at the situation of Empress Matilda 
which created this kind of negative precedent for regnant queenship in England and say, okay, well, you know, clearly here in England, we didn't have regnant queenship successfully until the 16th century. Now, after the 16th century, obviously with you know, Lady Jane Grey, we can argue about whether she's the first uh, regnant queen or not, um, or Mary Tudor um, onwards, we've got this great tradition of regnant queenship and obviously the current queen, you know, we have a, a queen on the throne today. So it becomes really important. Um, but the Empress Matilda kind of sets a negative precedent that kind of lasts throughout the Middle Ages in this country. But we have to be careful and, and look kind of wider than that because we have examples of regnant queens in the Middle Ages right across Europe and even beyond. We've got Razia Sultan in the Delhi Sultanate. We've got Arwa of Yemen. We've got Sandak of Silla or Korea. We've got the Empress Wu in China. All across Europe, we've got you know Jivan of Naples, Jadwiga of Poland-Lithuania, Tamar of Georgia, Melisande of Jerusalem, Uraka of Leon-Castile. And again, one of my favorite examples of a really successful regnant queen right at the end of the Middle Ages is Isabel I of Castile in the late 15th century. So um, this idea of women kind of ruling in their own right and kind of what it takes for a woman to kind of claim the throne and successfully kind of rule was the topic that really got me hooked on queenship studies. So it inspired um, my master's on the Queens of Jerusalem and my PhD and, and later book that you mentioned on the regnant queens of Navarre. So that's the kind of topic that really kind of got me excited decided to kind of study this. Um, so, you know, I think what we can say is while women faced considerable hurdles in terms of kind of taking power and then keeping power, you know, these women, these examples that I mentioned, all demonstrate that a woman could rule in her own right in the Middle Ages, even if the Empress Matilda was unsuccessful uh, in terms of claiming the throne and holding it. And again, some were really strong and successful rulers. So Blanca I of Navarre, for example, she defended her realm from attack. She worked to bring peace to end the war. She built alliances with the marriages of her children. She was noted as a real kind of model queen in terms of things like piety and patronage as well. So again, we see, you know, really successful queens ruling in their own right. They didn't have it easy, um, but we do see some great examples in the Middle Ages. Okay, thank you. Right, the next question is from Amy Keller-Kaufman on Facebook, and uh, she asks, uh, well, she would like to know more about medieval queens as mothers, and she specifically asks, are there any examples of medieval queens who stand out as having a close relationship with their children, uh, and is there any evidence that the queen's approaches to motherhood were considered uh, unconventional for the time? Now, this is a really great question here because maternity is absolutely central to queenship and, and obviously not just in the Middle Ages. Um, so we know that, you know, queens were under a great deal of pressure to produce children because it was about dynastic continuity and dynastic survival. You needed heirs for that to happen. But even saying that, um, so Teresa Ehrenfeit and Kristen Geeman um, wrote a really great chapter in the Routledge History of Monarchy about childless queens. Um, and they were arguing that women like Anne of Bohemia, for example, who didn't have any children, could still be really effective queens in other ways. And intercession is a great example with Anne of Bohemia. She was a really noted intercessor, for example. Um, now, in terms of thinking about queenship and motherhood, um, it's really important to know that or, or think that, you know, queens, they couldn't really be hands-on mothers, for example. I mean, obviously, they had huge responsibilities, they're running their households, their lands, engaged in the kind of political and ceremonial aspects of court life. They often had to be on the move with their husbands. So many, you know, courts were itinerant in the Middle Ages. They were moving around. Um, you know, they, they might be visiting other sites in the realm, their own lands. So all of this meant that they weren't always in the same place as their children. Um, some queens went on crusades. So, you know, Marguerite of Provence, Eleanor of Castile, um, they might've gone on diplomatic trips. So Isabella of France went on diplomatic trips back to France to, you know, kind 
kind of parley with her family. Um, so royal children were often kind of set up with these kind of little miniature households of their own. They had these kind of team of servants. They had nurses, governesses, tutors. They had even their own laundresses <laughs> to kind of wash the royal nappies, if you like. Um, so that's not to say that queens had no input into their children's lives and education, though. I mean, even though, again, you know, the, the, the children had this kind of uh, support you know, network, if you like, of their households to look after them. We know that queens were very involved in things like their education, for example. So Isabel of Castile that I mentioned and her own daughter, Catherine of Aragon, had really significant control and direction of their children's education. Um, and even if queens weren't with them every day, we know that many queens did have close and sometimes perhaps rather complicated relationships with their children, as, as many mothers and children do. Um, and obviously that could be complicated if queens were involved in co-rulership. So perhaps as a regent, uh, that could make it even more challenging. Um, so Carrie Fleiner and I, we um, co-edited two volumes that looked uh, at the role of royal mothers. Um, so one of them was Royal Mothers and Their Ruling Children, and the other one was Virtuous or Villainess, the Image of the Royal Mother from the Early Medieval to the Early Modern Eras. Now, in those two volumes, there are loads of case studies of particular royal mothers, so you know, Matilda of Flanders, Isabella d'Angoulême, Philippa of Hainaut, many others um, from the Middle Ages, and, and they demonstrate that um, that how important royal motherhood was, and also the variety of the experience of royal mothers. So um, that might be somewhere to go if you're interested in, in more specifics about specific royal mothers. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. Um, so I don't think that it, we can definitely say that there's a kind of a break point where, you know, the Queen's power suddenly kind of goes off a cliff, for example, rather than it's kind of changing and evolving. Right. Now, we've got a, a, a few questions here which uh, are all about one figure, one of the most popular uh, royal women uh, in the Middle Ages, as at least uh, from, from what we can tell from our readers and their reaction to her. So it's Eleanor of Aquitaine. And we've got a bunch of questions here. Um, there's lots of, of internet search um, queries about her. Who was she? Why was she important? What impact did uh, her marriage to Henry II have on England? Um, and what language did we speak? And then... Um, one specifically from uh, Jane Sarah on Facebook, who asked, how exceptional was Eleanor of Aquitaine and are there other queens with equivalent influence and power that are being overlooked or was she simply exceptional? So um, I I've given you a whole bunch of, the, uh, of questions together there. So um, so do your best and I'll, uh, I'll remind you if you've missed out any at the end. Fantastic. Yeah. Now, Eleanor of Aquitaine, actually, just this morning, I was noting um, on Twitter, there's the Medieval Queen's World Cup, and Eleanor of Aquitaine is currently in the lead. So we're down to the very, very final round, and Eleanor of Aquitaine might win the entire Medieval Queen's World Cup. And I think this kind of speaks to, and the questions that we've had here, um, the kind of continuing fascination with Eleanor of Aquitaine. And rightly so. I mean, you know, Eleanor of Aquitaine, she's the reason why I got into medieval queenship in the first place. So I'd already been kind of interested in queens like Cleopatra, but reading about Eleanor actually pulled me into the Middle Ages and um, started a real kind of fascination with her world and, and with her uh, more generally. So I know that I'm you know not the only person that shares that fascination. She continues to be someone in both uh, you know intellectual and academic studies, but also in terms of popular culture, um, really, really significant. Now, I think one of the reasons that, that she kind of continues to captivate us and her importance and significance is Eleanor's kind of like 
a queen for all seasons. So Eleanor has this incredibly long life. And over that long life, she kind of demonstrates all the multitude of roles that a queen could have. So she starts out, she's the heiress of Aquitaine. You know, it's one of the largest and wealthiest domains of Europe. So that makes her a really desirable bride, but also gives her uh, a great deal of like personal significance that, again, is the ruler of Aquitaine that goes beyond just being a queen. Now, obviously, in her first marriage, she's Queen of France. She famously went on the Second Crusade, you know, with her husband, Louis VII. She caused quite a stir there with uh, rumors of this kind of supposedly incestuous affair with her uncle, Raymond of Poitiers. Um, And then, obviously, you know, when her marriage to Louis VII ended, that caused considerable kind of comment by contemporaries. So she marries Henry Fitzempress. Um, You know, that that is really significant in terms of kind of beginning to create the kind of so-called Angevin Empire. She becomes queen again of England. Now, very few women have been queen in multiple marriages. So that right there makes her interesting. Now, exceptional is tough because we, you know, there's been a lot of kind of pushback on this idea of exceptionalism, that we should be kind of looking at Eleanor as an example of you know, what all medieval queens could do and, and were doing, if you like. But very few women have been able to achieve that kind of um, that kind of hallmark, if you like, of being a queen in multiple marriages and of different countries. So right at the end of the Middle Ages, Anne of Brittany manages to be queen of France twice back to back in successive marriages to French kings. But being queen of France and then England, again, that's a very unusual mark of distinction for her. Um, in terms of maternity, we were just discussing like what a key aspect of queenship. Again, Eleanor really kind of shows us the importance of, of maternity as well. So she doesn't give Louis a son. That's part of the reason why that marriage is annulled. But she gives Henry five sons and three daughters. So again, that's really significant. But not just the fact that she bears children, but her engagement with them and and politically, so her support for her sons when they revolted against Henry II. I mean, that basically landed her in kind of a long-term house arrest. But that shows her queenly power, maternal influence, that again, she had to be kind of confined to kind of restrain that, which is really important. Now, I think another thing that's really significant with Eleanor is her longevity and how important she is as a dowager queen. So again, this is really interesting for me because often we we kind of write off dowager queens. We think of, you know, when, when queens are widowed, they're kind of retired or they just run off to a nunnery. And Eleanor's career clearly demonstrates the power of dowager queens. And again, that's something I've been looking at a lot in this kind of broader book on queenship is, is actually, and particularly in some cultures, it's actually the dowager queen or the queen mother who has the most power. And Eleanor's, all, I think, arguably at her most powerful at this stage. So she's continuing to kind of dominate the scene during the reign of Richard I. She's continuing to act as kind of the queen in terms of ceremonial, the political aspects of the role, kind of co-ruling with Richard, again, having a great deal of responsibility while he's on crusade. Um, She even retains the payment of the queen's gold. So poor old Berengaria of Navarre, who Richard's married to, I mean, she just doesn't get a look in because Eleanor is is kind of taking the whole role for herself. Um, You know, she's she's an important kind of counselor, again, virtual kind of co-ruler, not just with Richard, but with John. She's continuing to direct kind of key dynastic affairs. So not only arranging Richard's ransom after he's taken prisoner, but she sorts out his marriage. She crosses the Pyrenees again in kind of very old age to, um, to kind of make her granddaughter Blanche of Castile, Queen of France. So 
Again, not many queens have so long a life or such a complicated or political scenario of, of, of Eleanor does that she did, which perhaps makes her exceptional in that way. But I think Eleanor kind of flies the flag for medieval queenship. She demonstrates the full glory of what a queen could do over all of the different stages of her very long life. And again, um, she, you know, we can argue whether or not that makes her um, completely exceptional, but certainly, like I said, she's she's a distinctive medieval queen. But again, she also shows what all medieval queens could do and were doing. That's what, one of the most interesting things about about her, I think, is this: the fact that she's an engaged player right up into. I mean, what is she eighties or older when she's um, when she's arranging those marriages and stuff? Absolutely, and particularly given in the Middle Ages, I mean, you know, her her longevity full stop was you know unusual at that at that period. But the fact that she again she's still crossing the Pyrenees, making long journeys, difficult journeys um, at that age is uh, is is really impressive. Yeah. Um, Right. You uh, answered all the questions on Eleanor bar one, but luckily uh, it leads into the next question, uh, which is, did foreign queens, e.g. Anne of Bohemia, Catherine of Aragon, learn perfect English? What language did they use at court and in private their ladies of waiting? And did they have a chance to use their native language? And that's from Carolina Sikorova on Facebook. And uh, you also had that question uh, uh, earlier on what language did Eleanor speak? So, um, so, So languages. Yeah, so we'll bring that all together. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, another great question because uh, many queens obviously were foreign princesses. So they were coming from another land and so they had to learn the language of the new court that they were moving to. And and this could be a, a real issue for them. If they couldn't master it, that could be a barrier and that could stop them from fully integrating uh, into their new courts. It could kind of mark her out as foreign or other, and that could prevent her from being kind of fully accepted by her subjects. Now, often um, foreign princesses often brought with them ladies-in-waiting or kind of servants from their home country, and that could be nice for them to continue to speak their native language with, but it could also cause resentment or even xenophobia at court. So one thing we see is these kind of calls to expel foreigners in the royal household. These were really quite common. So Joan of Navarre, for example, she had four different calls to purge her households of foreigners. So in 1404, 1406, 1416 and 1426. And there were these kind of this perception that her household was kind of a, a den of spies, etc., from all these kind of foreigners and these expensive foreigners that she was keeping in her household. So some princesses learned the language of court, you know, um, you know, even at their betrothed kind of court. So there's some examples of women who were sent to the court where they were going to be ruling um, as children. So they could be educated there. So they would pick up the language, but also the kind of court protocols and customs, which again, you know, you'd need to adjust to. But the problem with this is that Plans for royal weddings often change. So as politics changed, engagements could be kind of broken off and princesses could be effectively kind of redeployed. So a great example of this kind of strategy backfiring is Margaret of Austria. So she grew up in the late medieval French court. She was betrothed to Charles VIII and she was even called La Petite Reine, the little queen. Um, And so of course she was growing up there. She was learning French, fantastic. But ultimately Charles decides to break their engagement and marry Anne of Brittany. And so Margaret was sent back home and ultimately sent off to Castile to marry Juan de Asturias. So all that time learning French language and customs was kind of out the window. She had to then learn Castilian. So yeah, there you go. But 
even though there was, uh, it's important to recognize there is some internationality in court cir- circles. So some court languages, again, were used in, in multiple places. So going back to Joan of Navarre, which I appreciate I keep doing. Um, so she came from Iberia, but actually she most likely learned French as a child. So her mother was Jeanne de Valois, a French princess, and her own Navarrese dynasty actually had French origins. So we know for sure she spoke French at the Breton court when she was married uh, in her first marriage to the Duke of Brittany. So when she came to England in 1403, she likely kept speaking French. Now, interestingly, um, it was commonly used at the French court. So French was kind of a lingua franca. Um, Often, if you look at the documents of the time, even though English is starting to be used more, a lot of the documents of the time are kept in Latin or French. Um, So again, I'm not even sure if Joan mastered or even needed to master English. She lived in England for 34 years, but I wouldn't be surprised if she kept speaking French the whole time. And I suppose actually quite a few princesses would have been, you know, their mothers would have been foreign to the courts they were in anyway. So they would have probably been bilingual or or learning different languages as a matter of course. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. And, and some were obviously instructed. I mean, Catherine of Aragon, for example, um, you know, she learned multiple languages as a child. And Isabel of Castile was very keen that her daughters learned multiple languages. So, you know, many princesses were, were also linguists as well. Uh, uh, the next question is slightly related to this. Uh, it's from Carly Silver on Twitter, who asks, is there any truth behind the legend that uh, Uraka of Castile, who you mentioned earlier, was rejected as Queen of France in favour of her sister Blanche because her name wouldn't translate into French? So what's what's the story there? Okay, so this this is an interesting story. So the story goes um, that when Eleanor of Aquitaine, as we mentioned before, kind of you know crossed the Pyrenees uh, in her elder years and came to Castile, and she was basically coming to bring her granddaughter or one of her granddaughters back to the French court to marry the Dauphin. So again, cre- creating this alliance not just between Castile and France, but one that would benefit England by extension. Um, as you know, obviously Eleanor's daughter, um, Eleanor or Leonor Plantagenet, was the queen of Castile. So um, the, the the kind of the story that comes down to us from a later Spanish chronicle is that she bypassed the elder daughter Uraca in favor of Blanca because Blanca's name could be Blanche in French and that apparently would be better. Now, personally, it's a nice story. I doubt this was the case because queens' names were often changed to fit with kind of comparable versions and other languages. So, for example, a popular name uh, for for uh, royal women, if you like, in, in medieval Western Europe was Violante. And we have examples of Violante becoming Yolande. And, for example, Elizabeth or Elizabeth in, in French could become Isabel in, uh, you know, um, in Iberia and vice versa again. So so we often have these equivalents. Now, Uraka may not have had an easy French equivalent, um, but other names can be chosen. So a really good example of this in, in this country, actually a little bit later, it's not quite medieval, but Henrietta Maria is a great example. Now, the English, you know, Henrietta wasn't really a you know, common name for a queen, and she was often called Queen Mary because it was you know, more familiar, it was easier to anglicize, etc. So you know, Uraka, you know, could have been referred to by another name, 
you know, if that was convenient. Um, and Uraca actually eventually became queen of Portugal. So, you know, she may not have become queen of France, but she was hardly kind of, you know, left on the shelf, if you like. So her family clearly had other political plans for her. Um, now, it's important to recognize there are lots of reasons why a younger sister could be selected to marry over an elder one. Um, health could come into it. So, for example, for one of my Navarrese queens, um, Blanca uh, was was selected, and a different Blanca, obviously, was selected to make an Aragonese match over her elder sister Maria because Maria was was unwell. She was sickly and poorly, and so there was some concern that um, either she might not survive or she might not be able to bear children, so, um, so Blanca was chosen instead. Sometimes even personality or ability can come into it. So I think it was probably more than a name that led to you know, Blanca or Blanche of, of Castile being selected over her sister Uraca. Right. Uh, and that leads into uh, the next question in a way, because you're talking about queens changing their names. And we've got a question here uh, about um, sort of cross-channel queenship. Um, uh, and uh, Emma of Normandy, I think, um, who was uh, wife of Ethelred the Unready and Knut, I think, had to change. She changed her name to Elfgifu or, or or something along those lines. I think um, crossing between the channel. Anyway, the question here is: uh, is specifically English? Did roles and concepts of queenships change after the Norman conquest? So uh, that's from William Rochester on Facebook. Great. No, actually, great example on Emma of Normandy. Absolutely. Um, so yeah, absolutely. I mean, the role of the queen is an interesting kind of thing because. Royalty, and obviously the Queen's role specifically, is kind of both mired in tradition and precedent, but it's also kind of constantly evolving. So obviously, absolutely, we can see a huge impact. The Norman Conquest has a massive impact on the wider political landscape and framework of England, and queenship is part of that. So absolutely. But William, you've tapped into a bit of a vein here because there's been a, a massive debate in the field of queenship um, about this particular thing, if you like. Um, so there used to be a theory that uh, the, the most powerful medieval queens were the, the early medieval queens. And, and so the power of the queen was at its greatest kind of in the early Middle Ages, and that it kind of decreased significantly from the 11th century onward. Um, now, whether that's specifically about the conquest or more broader trends, if you like, that was the kind of staid argument for a long time. So this argument that the queen's role went from being kind of overtly political to being more domestic and maternal instead. Now, you know, th there's a lot of things going on there. There's been discussion about the church kind of promoting monogamy. And so the queen's role as a mother became more of the focus and shifts in succession patterns, etc. But more recently, um, we're kind of looking at this again and saying, actually, you know, is, is the 11th century this really important pivot point? Um, is, is it really about how the queen's offices changes rather than this idea of kind of diminishing power. Um, so yes, we can definitely see the Queen's office evolving. And yes, I do think the Norman Conquest, because of its incredible impact generally on the country, is, you know, has has a role in that. Um, but I think we can continue to see that again, medieval queens are, are wielding power and authority and influence across the Middle Ages. Um, so I don't think that it we can definitely say that there's a kind of a break point where you know the Queen's power suddenly kind of goes off a cliff, for example, rather than it's kind of changing and evolving, just like I said, the political framework of the country was after the conquest. Just a few more. And the next one is, uh, is an interesting architectural one from Emily Birch on uh, 
Twitter or Facebook, I'm not sure, uh, one of the two. Um, uh, she asks, how much influence did queens have on the buildings of uh, on the building of palaces and castles? No, this is, this is, a, it is a great question. Uh, Rachel Delman, again, she, she posted a really nice um, reply to this on Twitter, and she flagged up Sarah Cockrell's um, blog post about the impact of Eleanor of Aquitaine on English castles, um, which was really great. So, so yeah, absolutely. We can see um, a lot of different ways in which queens have influence on the building of palaces and castles. So on one side of it, we can see building projects in castles to provide kind of dedicated and luxurious spaces for queens. So Henry IV and Edward IV both made improvements at Eltham, for example, to kind of create and enhance the queen's apartments for their wives. Um, Amanda Richardson has done some really fantastic work on kind of thinking about the, the gendered spaces of medieval castles and palaces as well. But in terms of their personal influence on the building of palaces and castles, we can see queens doing that as well. So as I mentioned before, we have to remember that queens had uh, their kind of dower lands. As part of that, they had castles and residences that were their own. So they were responsible for not only maintaining those residences, but they could then undertake building programs and renovations of their own as well. So a great example of this is uh, Margaret of Anjou. So she received um, a, a palace that used to belong to Humphrey of Gloucester called Bella Court at Greenwich. And she expanded it into what became known as the Palace of Placentia and later, uh, I believe, Sheen. So she took under, you know massive expansion of the building. She made decorative improvements. Um, she installed kind of beautiful tiled flooring. She installed glass windows, which was a real kind of luxury at the time. And she left her real mark on it with her device of the daisy. So obviously her name, Margaret, in uh, French is Marguerite, which again, daisy, and she put her mark on it with kind of this kind of daisy uh, kind of pattern as well. Now, sadly, the building, building is no longer extant, so we can't um, appreciate that, but it's important to recognize uh, that as a really great example. Again, Rachel also mentioned the Scottish Queen Mary of Gelders. Again, she's another great builder queen. We can see her work at Ravenscraig Castle in Scotland, for example. Um, and actually beyond the Middle Ages, again, we see loads of fantastic builder queens. Uh, one example is Hedwig Eleonora. Uh, she was a Swedish queen. She was really um, instrumental in the development of Drottingholm Palace near Stockholm, which you can still visit today. Of course, Catherine the Great of Russia, great example uh, in terms of her residences and palaces in St. Petersburg and elsewhere. So yes, we definitely have um, kind of builder queens, if you like, who've made a significant imprint on the kind of physical fabric. And actually, I, I can't I can't not mention Mary II as well. If we're going to go slightly beyond the Middle Ages, obviously Kensington Palace, Hampton Court still really bears the stamp of her uh, influence there. Right. Uh, the penultimate question, which um, feels like it's it's coming from some sort of Game of Thrones type vibe. This is a popular internet search question, which is how were kings and queens punished in medieval times? What, right. Uh, what's the answer? No, definitely has a Game of Thrones vibe. I'm thinking of Cersei Lannister <laughs> there. <laughs> uh, absolutely. So, uh, no, it's true. I mean, while queens might be the highest woman in the land, doesn't mean that they're above the law or they're immune from prosecution. So yes, we do see queens um, arrested in the Middle Ages. So again, going back to Joan of Navarre, she was charged with witchcraft and placed under house arrest for three years. Now, it's important to note that Joan was not in a dungeon. You know, she was kept really comfortably. Um, you know, she had a reduced household and restricted freedom, um, but she wasn't like under lock and key or anything like that. But the big thing was that her lands were seized. So I kept, you know, I've been talking about how queens were kind of great landowners. She had a huge amount of, of revenue or theoretical revenue from these lands. So that's what this charge was all about. And the real motivation is that her stepson, Henry V, wanted her money 
for his Ashencore campaign. Um, so the best way to get that was to put her under arrest under a charge that was heinous enough to kind of require it. And then he had the ability to kind of take her lands back from her. Now, she was never tried, and eventually Henry V on his deathbed felt really bad about the way he treated his stepmother, and he he had her released uh, in the summer of 1422, right before he died. But other queens weren't as lucky. So um, a really great example from medieval history, and this is kind of French history rather than English, but um, is the affair of the king's daughters-in-law, so, or the affair of the Tour de Nesse. Um, so in 1314, Marguerite of Burgundy, um, she was the first wife of, of Louis, who was the Dauphin. He was going to be Louis X of France. Um, she was accused of adultery along with two of her sisters-in-law. Now, um, her sisters-in-law were Blanche and, and Jeanne. So Blanche was also accused of having an affair and Jeanne was basically implicated in abetting the illicit romances of Marguerite and Blanche. So Marguerite and Blanche were sent off to the Chateau Gaillard. They were kept in uh, very poor conditions, you know, kind of cold and damp, dunge- dungeon-like conditions definitely. Um, and Marguerite died there. Now, there's some discussion about whether she died of being held in these kind of cold, damp, and miserable dungeon-like conditions. There's also been some suggestions that she may have been bumped off or even strangled so that Louis could marry again. Um, but it's been, it's, it's, it's a really interesting one. And again, the, the kind of tour de nest or the affair of the king's daughters-in-law, it, it was kind of immortalized in kind of medieval romances, modern pop culture. So Maurice Durand, his saga of Les Rois Maudits or the Cursed Kings. Again, there's a really famous series of novels um, translated into English, um, several French television miniseries, and actually has been cited as kind of some of the inspiration um, that uh, George R.R. Martin drew on for Game of Thrones. So we've kind of gone all the way back full circle there. Excellent. I uh, I suspected we might. Um, Right. Last uh, last couple of questions. I'm going to uh, pull them together again. So, um, uh, Miss Nicholas PHS on Twitter uh, says uh, she'd like to know which medieval queen had the greatest effect on the country and how you would judge that. And then uh, the, a popular internet search question is uh, a very simple one: who was the best queen? So I suppose that's kind of asking the same thing in a, in a roundabout sort of way. Can, can, how can we assess that? Oh, this is really hard. I mean, it's hard on so many levels. Um, and again, this the whole medieval queen World Cup thing that they're doing on Twitter kind of shows, you know, because everyone's voting for who the best queen is. And, and this is a hard one because you can't come up with a kind of universal measure of success for any ruler. And, and it's even more complicated when you get to kind of queen consorts to kind of, you know, who's the best, who's, you know, and, and, and what makes them the best, if you like. So I have had debates with my queenship students about this. So, you know, wh- what are we talking about when we say so a queen was the best or successful? Are we talking about people who, you know, survived difficult times? Are we talking about women who were savvy politicians? Are we talking about those who were successful because they bore many children or those who were kind of beloved or well-remembered? Um, do they need to tick all of those boxes? Um, you know, if they did, I mean, who would even qualify? Who could tick all those boxes? I mean, you know, again, going slightly outside the Middle Ages, if we look at Elizabeth I, so Elizabeth I, very iconic queen, um, you know, she she's often kind of held up as this kind of example of a great queen, great monarch, etc. So she might be considered successful in lots of ways, but she had no children. And so she ended the Tudor dynasty. Now, again, you know, considering how important maternity is to queenship, and I, I often kind of joke with my students, that maternity is kind of job spec number one for medieval queens, um, you know, that was an issue. It caused concerns about the succession. And there were concerns, you know, at some points that Elizabeth herself might not survive or England could be invaded. So we can hold her up and as one of the greatest monarchs of the country, male or female, and I think rightly so. But again, even someone who is really successful or really great queen, there are things that you can kind of unpick and say, well, you know, she didn't do this or she didn't have success there. 
Now, one of the queens that really lives up to this expectations of medieval queens that we were talking about earlier that kind of ticks all the boxes in terms of what the good queen should do is Philip of Haino. Now, Philip of Haino is not one of our most well-remembered queens. Um, you know, she's not someone, again, if you kind of put a Twitter poll and said, oh, who's one of our most successful medieval queens? I don't think you'd get loads of people going, oh, definitely Philip of Haino. But to her contemporaries, again, she was very successful. She did everything that the good queen should do. Um, so, you know, I think it, it is one of those things very much open to debate. Um, you know, we all have our favorites. Again, you know, the Medieval Queens World Cup is definitely showing that. Um, lots of queens you can make an argument for um, in terms of their image impact or you know, maybe their negative impact even. Um, but how we measure, measure greatness, I mean, that that's a real um, thing out, up for debate. So definitely when I'll be going back to my queenship students with um, next year, maybe I'm going to uh, design an essay question or something so to see who they argue for in terms of who's the best queen, because that is the eternal question. Okay. Uh, I, I fear the uh, the medieval Queen's World Cup will have finished before we've had a chance to get this podcast out. But um, but it's it's a it's a good bit of fun on uh, on Twitter there if anyone's uh, if anyone's uh, following that. Um, just quickly, Philip of Hainault, um, a quick twenty second guide to who she was. I'm not sure we've covered her too much. Yeah, really good question. So she is the wife of Edward III. So um, Philip of Hainaut, um, again, she's often overshadowed by her mother-in-law. So Isabella of France, so the famous kind of she-wolf, if you like, who ousted um, her, her husband, Edward II, and was responsible for kind of bringing her son, Edward III, onto the throne. So Philippa definitely is kind of in Isabella's shadow, um, certainly in terms of, uh, you know, memory, if you like, pop culture, in terms of interest. Uh, Isabella's rightly uh, a very intriguing and interesting queen to look at. Philippa of Haino, um, you know, like I said, she does tick all the boxes. She has a good relationship with Edward. We talked a little bit about her in terms of her intercession. Um, she was, a, you know, pious, the good patron, the good mother. She has a huge number of children. Um, the Black Prince, obviously John of Gaunt, being two of the most famous of those. It is effectively the descendants of Philip of Haino that end up be kind of being part of the Wars of the Roses, that kind of lineage uh, trickling down, if you like. Um, so she is, uh, you know, she, she is one of those queens, again, she ticks all the boxes in terms of being the good wife, the good mother, the good queen, pious, patron, pretty, all of those kind of things. Um, but again, not one that we necessarily kind of, the first queen that we spring to mind, maybe she's too good, that she doesn't kind of, again, make uh, the chronicles for the kind of scandalous reasons like Eleanor of Aquitaine or, or even Isabella of France um, does. And so we kind of forget about her because she was just getting on with the job and doing it well. Okay, sorry, I, for I forgot you'd mentioned her in the intercession uh, section. Um, Right, uh, Dr. Ellie Woodacre, Dr. Um, Eleanor Woodacre, thank you very much for your time there. Um, have we? I mean, we've. Those are the questions that have come in from our listeners and readers, and and the and the internet. And obviously, you teach medieval queens and queenships, and, and are very much um, uh, involved in this. Are there any sort of obvious gaps here? Any areas that we haven't covered that um, that that sort of regularly crops up for you? Oh, that's a difficult one. No, I think actually we, we've done a good job today, I think, in terms of covering um, the bases. I mean, I think I think one of the things in terms of kind of the gaps in the field or the areas that I'm really interested for people to kind of know more about is, is the kind of international aspect, the kind of global aspect of queenship. And again, thinking about queens outside of the kind of the ones that we really know and love. And I'm hoping that we can, um, you know, we can get more of a spotlight on these women, even English queens like Joan of Navarre and Philip of Hainaut, who aren't as well known. I mean, Eleanor of Aquitaine, again, fantastic 
fantastic. We love her. Um, but there's so many other fascinating women out there. And again, if we go beyond Europe, again, looking at people like I mentioned, Empress Wu, Razia Sultan, there's some amazing medieval uh, queens who have a huge amount of power, um, really interesting lives. Everybody's interesting as Eleanor of Aquitaine. Um, so, so definitely I'm hoping that we can kind of get more of that in the picture um, going forward. Brilliant. Thank you. And just finally, um, where if you're if you're a, a lay enthusiast rather than an academic enthusiast for medieval medieval queenship, um, where, where's where's the best place to go for more information on this? Is it is it your Royal Studies Network or is it where 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 do you where do you go to seek out more information? Do you think that's a really good question? Actually, on the Royal Studies Network, so it is kind of a, a free thing to join. It's not like a, um, a you know it's a society where you have to pay dues, etc. If you do belong to that, you have access to we have a, a queenship bibliography that you can log into and you can search it. Um, you know, so again, it's a, it's, a, it's a database, if you like, of kind of works on queens and queenship. Um, so whatever kind of queen you're into, Teresa Ehrenfeit also runs a fantastic blog. Her um, Queenship in Medieval Europe is a really excellent textbook. It's not very um, expensive. It's one I regularly recommend to my students. And again, on her blog, she also has the bibliography connected to that book. So again, if there's particular women you want to know more about, um, you know, do check it out. And hopefully, uh, you know, when this book finally comes out in press, you'll have my Queens and Queenship book to look at as well. And what's what's the uh, what's the time scale on that one? Um, it should be out at the end of next year, hopefully. So you know, COVID and press is willing, but it's it's in production right now. <laughs> sure, sure, brilliant. Well, we will look out for that, and we will uh, we will come back and talk to you. Uh, I'm sure when that's uh, when that's ready. Um, so so uh, uh, for now, thank you very much. That's been um, a really interesting uh, guide to uh, medieval queens and queenships. So thank you very much. You've answered all the questions. Fantastic. Thank you. That was Eleanor Woodacre. If you found today's podcast interesting, then please do drop us a line with ideas of topics or historians you'd like us to include in the series. You can do that on our social media channels at History Extra. Also, make sure you check out historyextra.com for loads more content on medieval queens. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. We'll be back on Monday when I'll be speaking to Chris Gosden about the history of magic.